and little tiny things like that throughout the course of a round can add up to cause three, five strokes. And that's really what it comes down to. What separates uh, like the good from the great, not always trying to park things, but maybe you play the straight shot to a 20 footer on the left side of the basket or a 30 footer left side of the basket. Little things like that decision-wise, I think. And, uh, so maybe what are, you know, three tips for playing in the woods that you're not gonna hear anywhere else. What's going on you guys? Connor O'Reilly here with Team Latitude 64 and OTB Discs. And y'all are listening to the Chain Clankers Podcast. What is going on everyone? Welcome into the Chain Clankers Disc Golf Podcast. This is going to be the episode for you if you want to get better at playing disc golf in the woods, shaping your shots, this is going to be an absolute must listen for you guys. Today we bring on Connor O'Reilly of Latitude 64. You heard him in the intro and let me tell you why. This guy has so many great tips for you guys. If you want to improve your game, you're going to hear tips that you're not going to hear on any other channel in today's episode. Connor drops three tips for playing in the woods that you've probably never heard before, or you, they're not very mainstream. So definitely a super fun episode. Connor's a really awesome guy. You're going to learn all about his journey in disc golf and how he got started, as well as he's got a very, he calls it a lukewarm hot take. I, I call it a, I, I call it a hot take. All right. And, and it's just, it makes so much sense. Once you hear it and you hear the arguments, it's going to make so much sense. And I would be interested to hear, do you agree with Connor's hot take in this episode? I absolutely 1,010% agree with him, but I would be interested to hear what you have to say. Make sure you comment down below whether or not you agree with him or not. If you're watching on YouTube, you already know. I got that new webcam action. If you're listening to us on YouTube, hit that thumbs up, leave a comment on your thoughts and any extra tips you have for playing in the woods. Would definitely love to hear from you. If you're listening to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you get podcasts, we definitely appreciate it. If you could leave a rating and review, any kind of feedback is good feedback for us, some constructive criticism in order to get better. Uh, if there's one thing about this show, we always want to get better. Just like our disc golf game, we always want to improve. So it definitely helps us out when you guys do that. But without further ado, I think it's time to go ahead and let's bring Connor O'Reilly onto the Chain Clankers Disc Golf Podcast. Connor, welcome into the Chain Clankers podcast. You are coming off a pretty big win over in Delaware on the national tour. How are we doing today, man? What's going on, you guys? Happy to be here. This last week or so, what was that like? Um, out of Delaware, yeah. yeah. Uh, that was yeah. That was definitely it was definitely a special performance for me. Just on a year where I feel like I've had a slow year, I haven't really played that close to my potential all year, and to finally put a couple of good rounds together. My first time playing on a feature card, so it kind of brought those vibes and the seriousness from the start, and I feel like that kind of helped me elevate my game and play the way that I, that I wanted to play. But, yeah, definitely uh, it's been it's been a little crazy since, and uh, things are starting to settle back in, though. Nice. That's awesome, man. Yeah, definitely watching on Joe Mesa was super fun. It looked like you were in complete control of that event pretty much the whole time. Did, did it feel like that, especially, you know, Ricky getting a little close there on the back nine? Like, did you feel like you were in control the whole time? I mean, I knew during the second round, it was about like midway through the second round that we had about three to four, sometimes five of the disc golf network live cams on us. And we were on the chase card. So I figured the, the lead card was kind of pretty slow. I wasn't really looking at scores, but seeing all those cameras over on us. And then I, I knew I was kind of facing the card by a stroke or two, maybe in the lead and finished out that strokes on the next closest person in the field. So yeah, I mean, definitely felt like 
going into the final day. It was my tournament to win or lose, and it definitely added a little pressure, I feel like. Yeah, for sure. So I, I guess, like, take me through your mental game there. You know, you said it added a little bit of pressure being on, a, like, nine, nine holes left to play. Like, take me there. Are you – completely locked in are you checking your phone for other scores are are you having a good time talking to everyone are you by yourself what what was kind of your mental I guess process through that knowing that you're on the verge of clinching your first national tour win what were you thinking about yeah I mean I guess after nine holes I I had started kind of gotten it got it rolling so I was in a little better headspace there than maybe say like four holes into the round. I was one up through four holes, had given up six of the strokes I had. I had given up half of the six strokes I I had on Ricky. So he was only back three now. At that point, it was like, okay, I I felt like it was slipping away a little bit. And it was one of those moments like, all right, like I can keep crumbling and not focusing or whatnot. Or I can just like lock in on my target and like, stay focused on my game plan, which is kind of what got me where I am. Then I kind of, I rung together like five birdies straight, I think on holes five through nine. After, after hole nine, I mean, hole nine, Ricky made a, made an eagle putt. I made a birdie. So he was still like, he was riding a lot of momentum. He was, I could tell he was going to be scoring all day. So I knew I was going to have to try to keep it clean and put in some birdies myself. So around, around hole nine, 10, right around the, the bend there, I started to kind of settle into myself and it was like, all right, if I can just like breathe and stay focused on keeping myself from not letting the nerves or the moment get too big, then I, then I feel like this is mine to kind of, to kind of walk in with and, uh, and just make sure I don't, don't do anything too stupid. And so when, you know, when you're saying you're focusing in, can you break that down a little bit? Are you focusing on your technique, what you practice on that that prior week? Are you focusing on not making mistakes? What exactly, you know, are you trying to focus on? What are you trying to not think about too much? For me, it kind of comes down to during the round, it'll come down to like depending on the shot. Like if I'm on the tee box, my main focus is kind of going to be like, what's my aim point? I always try to be very specific with picking up site or some type of thing that I want my disc to swing next to or, or be my my kind of aim point to make the gap the biggest. But yeah, then on the putting green, yeah, just, just staying focused on a length and making sure once again to breathe and then try to just stay balanced and have a nice smooth stroke. Sometimes I feel like when people get nervous on the putting green uh, or lose focus, they kind of can swing their arm a little fast. So trying to just stay smooth and stay slow, knowing that like you're going to get going to get the pop you need if you follow through with your legs and have the right timing. Um, so yeah, just kind of trying to focus on those mental processes is, is my way to stay focused when I'm, when I'm feeling those kind of big little nerves. Well, Connor, let's go all the way back and let's start off with your disc golf journey, right? How, how did you get introduced into disc golf? It wasn't until after I graduated from college, I, I got a business management degree, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was coaching basketball at the time and I was really enjoying that. That was fulfilling for me to instill confidence in, in young kids and, and kind of like help teach them and, and doing so teaching myself. But then one day my brother got me to go play with him while I was coaching and I was just like, oh, like I, it really scratched that competitive itch I had and he beat me by probably 20, 30 strokes. And like never in my life had he had he been able to throw anything like that much better than me. So it was kind of like that kind of bugged me. I was like, all right, there's no way like my little brother can beat me that bad at this thing. And uh, I always enjoyed being outside and hiking and just being in nature and whatnot, fishing, everything like that. So uh, it kind of just was like a perfect little marriage. And so I was like, all right, you know, I'll go back out and play another time with my brother until I can beat him. And Throughout the process of trying trying to beat him at our local course, just kind of fell in love with seeing the disc do what you want, what you imagined in your head. Just see, like figuring out how many different details and tiny little things go into the game. It just really was like it was addicting for me. 
And does your brother still play? Does he? Yeah, he still plays uh, just recreationally here and there. He didn't get as addicted as you, or is he just still in school and stuff? No, yeah, he he just he didn't quite latch onto it as much as me. I feel like I had enough kind of passion and drive for it to, that I I guess it was enough for for everyone in, in the family. But uh, now he he coaches basketball actually himself and kind of manages a, a gym down in Austin. So I don't know, just just something he hasn't really chosen to pursue even though i bet if he wanted to dedicate himself to it he could have some some success in it as well yeah that's a pretty cool start you know little brother beating up on you not not something i can imagine you were used to growing up and you know kind of kicking off that competitive itch talk to me a little bit more about that competitive itch you know i understand there's the wanting to beat your brother but how do you go from just wanting to beat your brother okay finally you've done it you're satisfied to you know what I think I'm going to win some tournaments. I'm going to go out on the road and I'm going to make disc golf my entire life. How did that happen for you? I mean, competition just kind of ingrained in me and my whole family. I've got three little brothers and an older sister. So we've got five kids in the family. So growing up, you just had to, you know, you had to compete for attention. You had to compete for food. You had to compete for every little thing you did. So it kind of just like has seeped into like who I am as a person. Once I kind of saw the quick the quick improvements that I was having early on, I was like, all right, if I've already gotten this much better in this much time. And I, if I keep devoting even more time and keep working, like, I don't know, I think I could, I could probably compete with like some of those guys that I'm, that I'm watching on YouTube right now and just kind of packed a little layer on the snowball and just kept packing and, and going until the snowball kind of started getting big enough to go on its own a little bit. What was the biggest, I guess you would say like turning point and where you started to see where you might have a chance at the sport. It was probably my first, my first, open win which was actually it was actually my first cash as well my first two open tournaments I kind of moved up I, I got a win in advance and I moved up and I was like all right you know I'm ready to learn from the best guys see how I stack up and uh I was like in the 930s rating wise and my first two tournaments I got almost got like last place in the tournament I think I beat one guy the first time the first tournament and then the next one I think I beat like two or three guys who might have not showed up on the final day because it was raining or something yeah like, there was like a moment during that tournament where I kind of had a low point where I thought about like throwing the round because like oh you know if I just put it out of bounds a couple times it'll drop off my rating and it won't count towards my rating which at the time was like 920 something anyway so like it didn't it, it, in the grand scheme of themes it was like it was so like petty to to try to preserve something like that and be afraid of like giving yourself a chance to like be your best self. So I think the disappointment of that, like really made me like have a moment where I was like, all right, like I'm, I'm telling everyone that I want to make this happen that I want to do this and I'm going to do this. But like, how hard am I true? Like, am I, am I really like, just cause I'm out working a couple people in the, in the city, I'm out working a couple people in my neighborhood. Like that doesn't mean I'm doing anything when it comes to like, I'm talking about the best in the world. Like there's only, only a select few people out of thousands of thousands, of hundreds of thousands that play that are able to call themselves like some of the best in the world. And like, I had to kind of evaluate whether I was like willing to put in the work to be that like that good. And uh, I feel like that was kind of when I started putting in at that every day, like even when I wouldn't want to like putting in 20, 30 minutes on whether it was my body or my putting stroke or whatever it was. Yeah. I feel like through that process, it just like kept evolving from there. I, I ended up getting my first B tier win, which was my first cash as I, I was a 937 rated player, beat a bunch of like just around thousand rated players. And that kind of, for me, was like, all right, I'm like, I'm this far below what they say I should be to win this tournament. And I already did it. So like, what's to say I can't like keep jumping above and like taking big steps if I keep like working hard. So that was kind of like the big moment for me. I feel like. Yeah. And I, I think to 
have success in disc golf, I really think it's important to have a good work ethic. And you kind of described it there. It's, you know, the ability and the want to go out and putt for 20 minutes when you're not feeling it or go out and do some field work when all you want to do is go and play. So I, I, I applaud you, man. I, I think that's really cool. And obviously it's been working out for you, seeing where you're at now and the sky's the limit. It, it's got to be so cool to understand, you know, being 930, beating a bunch of thousand rated guys and being like, wow, I really can do almost anything I want in this sport. And that kind of draws me back to you, your first win at the national tour, pretty heavily wooded course. I want to talk about playing disc golf in the woods. It's obviously different from playing disc golf in you know, the wide open. So maybe what are, you know, three tips for playing in the woods that you're not going to hear anywhere else are going to be having a footwork that can kind of line you up in the gap properly making sure that your last step is where it needs to be on the tee box to make the gap as big as it can be. And uh, I think, yeah, so I think footwork on the tee box is huge in the woods and something that some people might overlook, making sure that your line of your feet allows for your body to pull through cleanly without rounding around your body. So I'd say that's a a big key for me in terms of how I'm going to attack in the woods. Um, I think another big thing in the woods, sometimes people get trapped trying to throw the perfect shot, get around that little corner 20 feet or throw the perfect shape when a lot of times in the woods, just throwing a slightly slower disc so you can achieve that straight line and control the, your, your end of your finish is going to be advantageous because you're still going to give yourself a chance. You're going to be in the middle and you might, whether it's a, a par four and you kind of just play a placement shot in the first one still giving yourself a long look at a birdie on the second one. I think playing those slower, straighter lines in the woods, not always trying to park things, but maybe you play the straight shot to a 20 footer on the left side of the basket or a 30 footer left side of the basket, little things like that decision wise, I think can uh, help big time in the woods. And then lastly, I think kind of going along with that last one, this is, this is maybe a tip that you've heard before is I think throwing slower discs in the woods is, is huge. If you go back and watch the final round of the Delaware coverage, Ricky was the one applying the main amount of pressure on me. And uh, if you look at his tee box selection, he's throwing distance drivers, 12, 12, 13 speeds on a lot of these tee shots. And um, if you look at what I was selecting for, I was going with a seven speed, the fairway driver, because I knew I could still get enough distance to score, but my line would be a little tighter. The variance would be a little lower. And I can control the end of my flight, keep me in the middle and still give myself chances to score, even though I might not be throwing the best shot that you've ever seen on the hole. I'm going to throw a shot that's going to give myself a chance and not put me in too much danger. So keep my stress levels down. Do you think that, you know, Ricky throwing those high speed discs, is that comfort thing or is that something because he's like, he's so skilled. He, he's able to do that because he knows, you know, I feel like a lot of, mistakes you know that's why you're saying throw the slower discs you think somebody like ricky is confident enough in his shot that he's able to do that or yeah i think it comes down to ricky has a huge amount of confidence and i think he's really confident in his ability to execute and he knows that if he throws the perfect shot with the perfect disc he can give himself a very easy chance at a birdie or sometimes eagles on these holes and uh yeah i think just with his like almost genius level of scrambling that he's displayed over the years and ability to make long putts. He kind of doesn't really care off the tee because he'll just like, he knows he can, if he, if he plays the aggressive shot and pures, he's going to have an easy, easy chance. But if he knows, he knows if he misses, he's probably still going to scramble, get up and down for 
something that doesn't cause him too much harm. So I feel like, yeah, uh, his just confidence and his abilities was, was part of the reason that he's choosing for those fast discs on some of those holes. And let's talk a little bit about shaping your lines, shaping those shots. You know, uh, you said that you want to go with the fairway driver a little bit more because it allows you to control the end of your flight. Could you maybe explain that a little bit more? Like what does controlling the end of your flight mean? And how can I, you know, somebody who's 900 or below rated, how can I kind of position myself to do it? Because it might be a little bit difficult to kind of control where the disc is flying at that level. What kind of tips do you have for that? Yeah, I think a lot of that comes down to those slower discs. And like what I, what I mainly mean by uh, controlling the end of your flight is uh like landing the disc flat or closer to flat because the flatter you land the disc, usually the more predictable ground play, assuming that there's not roots and rocks and things in the, in the way. Um, but yeah, the closer you can get to landing your disc flat, the less weird reactions or big reactions you're going to get. So obviously there's times where it's advantageous to have your disc skip to the left or skip to the right. And there's times to do that. But for the most part, I think uh, being able to throw a shot where you can kind of have the end of the flight coming down softly, penetrating straight and landing forward and, and flat can be a, a good way to control the game and just keep yourself a little cleaner down the fairways versus taking that driver and skip an extra five, six feet left, which might not seem like a big difference, but you're on a tree. Now you have to do your straddle stance, which isn't your comfortable putting stance. And little tiny things like that throughout the course of a round can add up to cause three, five strokes and that's really what it comes down to what separates uh, like the good from the great, the average from the good. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I want to go back to that first point you gave also about the T-pad selection. I think that's a really good, good tip. And not a lot of people think about, I tell that t- kind of to my, my buddy all the time. Um, he's used to throwing kind of higher shots or kind of more, you know, sometimes in a, in an open hole, you can make, those mistakes you know go up high or go to the right and the disc is going to go out fade back and you, you'll still be in the fairway no issue um mm-hmm. and i think a lot of people go to that same x step and they just you know they see the t-pad and they're like well this is the t-pad this is how i normally go to the t-pad and in those tunnel shots or in the woods they they do the same thing and yep. that's where they hit the trees hit first available um exactly because what you're talking about and you know changing the position of where you step on the t-pad you can't make the same mistakes that you can outside of the woods, you know, cause there's a lot more trees. And I barely, I just started realizing that, you know, a few weeks ago when I kept making a mistake on this one same hole, I kept going left early and hitting the same trees. And so I adjusted. Mm-hmm. And so I started a lot more to the right of the tee pad that way. So by the time I got up there, I was more in the middle and I started hitting that line a lot better. And so take us a little bit through, you know, when you look at a hole, look at a tee pad, the different scenarios, how you're going to break that tee pad down to adjust for your shot. Obviously for your typical tunnel shot, you kind of want to start as a right-handed player. You, you want to, if you just have a tunnel with the tee pad straight in the middle and you want to throw it straight as a right-handed backhanded player, you want to start probably on the back right of the tee box and end right in the middle. So you have a little bit of diagonal from the right to the left in your throw, just so you can have your body in clean position so that your front foot is a little bit in front of your foot. And uh, so you can pull in a clean line through your body. And, and for the left-handed backhand player, that's going to look like you starting on the left side of the box, ending up in the middle so that your left foot can be a little bit in front of your right foot, just so you can have that clean hip angle and, and pull through angle where you don't round and you can pull straight on a line. 
Um, but where it'll switch is sometimes there'll be a tree, whether it's right off the tee box or a little bit down the fairway that kind of pushes that middle of that gap, say maybe halfway down the fairway that if I step maybe two feet to the left, now the angles, the, the number of angles and width that I have of the fairway has just increased by two to, three, two to three, four feet when I get down to where that tree is. So I think sometimes, yeah, positioning yourself to avoid obstacles later down later down in the fairway is, is a way to do that, as well as sometimes they'll throw stuff like right off the tee box. I don't love when course design has uh, like a tree that you actually have to avoid on the tee box. So you don't like hit yourself on, but I feel like sometimes there is some of that still in our game right now where like you have to actually use one side of the tee box to avoid an obstacle right there. But for the most part, I think on the better designs, you're going to have to, you're going to want to use it to just make the tunnel a couple percent bigger for you. Cause really this game is all about like missing smaller. And if you can make the, you can make the tunnel 3% bigger, your, your variance is just going to be that much better. So I think uh, every little bit you can get is helpful. I think real, go ahead, Horatio. Yeah. Just real quick follow-up question on that. Just so it makes sense. You know, I think course design talking about T pads, one mistake I see a lot of people do is they'll see the T pad and it's straight and it's facing just straight at the basket, I guess, let's say, but then sometimes yeah. let's say they move the pins or whatever. And so now the basket is, you know, off to the right or something like that. And people, instead of changing their, except the way they run up to the, the tee pad, you know, as you normally would like straight at the basket, they use the same direction as the tee pad. Like, well, the tee pad is facing this way. So I have to throw this way and it causes them to throw like a really hardcore turnover or something weird like that. Does that kind of make sense? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely could see that being, being a thing. So yeah, I think seeing the tee box and then like looking and seeing where, what you need to shape and not, yeah, there's going to be tee boxes that aren't the ideal angle or aren't pointing straight at where you want to throw. So you definitely got to kind of plan out your steps here and there, make sure that you don't get kind of trapped in the throwing in the direction of the tee box if it's not like advantageous for you. Yeah, that makes sense. Horatio, I'm glad you brought that up because that that is a really good point. You know, you will see a hole, for example, that is to the right and you'll still hit the top left corner. That means you're going to have to put a ton of either Anheuser, you're going to have to grip lock it or something to get it to really go to the right. So yeah, that, that's a really good shout, Horatio. Um, but I, I want to explore the, the woods topic just a little bit further. And I, I'm not sure how much the footwork has to do with this, but obviously in the woods, you've got much... I mean, you have higher ceilings to hit, like your probability of not hitting the ceiling skyrockets because there actually is a ceiling compared to those wide open shots. So is there anything that you can do with your footwork or maybe your body while you're on the tee to hit more ceilings correctly? I think the feet aren't the biggest thing when it comes to nose angle, which will affect the ceiling hits and hit, and making sure you hit the ceiling required on the hole. I think the biggest thing when it comes to hitting your ceiling is going to be the level of your shoulders. So when you want to throw a flat shot, um, if you watch a guy like Matty O, he's a really, he's a really simple thrower and he does a great job getting his shoulders where he wants them to be. If you want to throw with the nose up, you want to get your right shoulder up as a right-handed backhand thrower. If you want to throw with the nose flat so you can throw a straight shot, you want your, your shoulders to be flat. And if you want to pull the nose down and get some turn on the disc, whether you're throwing a roller or just a turning shot, you want to get that right shoulder dipped forward, your leading shoulder dipped forward. So that would be the opposite for a left-handed player. Um, so yeah, I think the biggest thing for hitting, sh hitting your ceiling and hitting your, your Y axis in the woods is going to be getting your shoulders in the right place. And sometimes you, I think your feet, 
your feet shouldn't have too much effect on that. Obviously, if you're running in the wrong direction and doing certain bad footwork things, and that might throw off your ability to get your shoulders where you want them. But I think, yeah, getting those shoulders proper is probably going to be the biggest thing for hitting the nose angles in the woods. It, it might be, you know, just that shoulder thing, but do you find yourself, I feel like I kind of notice players sometimes squatting down when they need to hit those lower shots and almost like, you know, getting lower. Do you, is there any tips, you know, to doing that when you want to throw a, uh, I guess maybe something with the ceiling, is that kind of where you would do that with your body? Yeah, no, I, I do find myself doing that. I kind of think of Paul Macbeth when I think of yeah. that type of shot. Uh, he does a really good job kind of lowering his body down and just kind of zooming the disc on a straight, straight low line. Yeah, I think it is something that I try to do and a lot of players or a lot of good players definitely want to do, kind of be able to throw like you do want to throw with your legs locked out for full power and be standing nice and upright. But there's some times where yeah, you wanna you wanna hit a low ceiling straight shot and you wanna really control your control your body and sometimes squatting, you know, three, five, six inches is gonna make a difference. Like I said, a couple percent and and golf can make a big difference. So uh yeah, I think being able to squat and, and throw from a slightly lower body position and kind of having a little more of that, like, you know, it almost causes a little more drag from the backside of your body when you throw like that, but like being still being able to get that backside of the body through the shot and stay balanced is a, a, a good skill to have, especially when you're in the woods. Yeah, great discussion so far. I know there's some tips that I'm going to be able to take away and take directly to the course after this episode. If you guys are with me, make sure you hit that like button. Let's kind of transition here. I know we're kind of starting to come up on time. So let's talk about your disc golf hot take. Let's get to this fun segment. Connor, what is your disc golf hot take? Uh, I mean, it's probably going to be lukewarm for some of you guys, but I don't want to ruffle too many feathers. Uh, I'll, I'll let y'all get to know me a little bit before that, but um. I think, I think especially on the main level, on the tour level, we need to have a singular surface and size tee box right now. It's kind of a hodgepodge wild west of like all different teeing surfaces and shapes and sizes. And I think if there's going to be one place that every player's forced to be for 18 times on a course, then it needs to be a place that players can trust and feel consistency from and not be worried about their health and to be able to just focus on throwing a good shot. Uh, I think I feel like we've had a lot of issues recently, whether it's some of these paver tee boxes we've been playing on in the Northeast that get really slippery if it's wet at all outside. They're great. A lot of tee boxes are great in the, in the, in the good conditions, pretty much everything we've played on. But as soon as a little bit of moisture comes, whether it's turf or some of these paver tee boxes, I feel like they kind of don't hold up uh, when it comes to comparison to concrete. And uh, I think the proper texture concrete right now is the best surface that we have consistency wise in the good and bad weather. Some people say concrete might have a little more impact on your legs over time than over turf, but I think uh, a lot of the turf doesn't quite get the maintenance that it really needs to be as good as it can be. And uh, I think maybe eventually concrete isn't the, isn't the answer when we can really figure out how to do turf properly and maybe have some kind of substrate that we pour down on rainy days to keep it a little grippier or absorb some moisture and uh, also be able to make sure we keep the lumps away because sometimes a lot, a lot of times those turf ones get lumpy and can cause just uh, some stress on your on your joints and ankles from hitting an angle that you weren't really expecting on your run up and stuff and um, I also think yeah width and si- width and length uh, 
like one of the things with the course we played at Worlds, the Fort, I was one of my favorites we played all year, but the tee boxes were tiny. Like they were, the width and the length were so small. I feel like there's been a couple of tee boxes this year where I can barely get, I, I like to take like a four step run up usually and I can barely even get like the three, the right, left, right, last three steps on the tee box. I'm like thinking about whether or not it's actually going to be like landing on the tee box or not. And, and that's like something that's kind of annoying to have to deal with as like a taller player. Uh, I wish that every tee box would just had like the proper width or at least like a, a set width. And then, uh, I mean, if we had, the, I think somewhere in the 13, 14, 15 foot, I think 15 feet would be a good length because it's like extra long for the players who don't need it. But then for the players who like a good, a good stride, then it's, it's enough length. And obviously 15 feet is a lot of, a lot of concrete in a lot of spots, but even if we just get it somewhere in the, the 12 range or more, like, mandated with the right width then it'd be nice to have some better consistency on that level because I, th I think it's kind of a shame when you get to a property and it's an amazing course and everything is like what you dream about disc golf being it's got grassy fairways mature trees elevation change it's got lines to shape in the open in the woods it's got water like and then the teeing surfaces like you're not you're able to think about your target because you're just trying not to slip so that you don't bust your butt i just feel like it's uh, something that we kind of need can change pretty quickly especially on the top level of the tour um and then trickle down obviously from there but i think especially on our top competing level like we want everyone to be playing on a good uh repeatable and consistent surface and i think with all the, the big fields we have and some players staying off at 9 a.m some players staying off at 3 p.m there can be such a difference what the t-pad might play in the morning to what it plays in the afternoon it can be a, it can be a pretty big uh disadvantage for some players so it's kind of it's kind of unfortunate yeah I, I i completely agree horatio i imagine you agree as well it just makes no sense while we have t-pads that look different and play different like i i think some uniformity would be really good for the sport and same thing for the baskets i i personally don't understand why yeah. on the pro level uh, this is all on the pro level why the baskets yeah. are different everywhere they go they, there should just be one set basket go ahead horatio yeah no, yeah, I, no, I totally agree. I don't know. Yeah, and some people, some people with the baskets like some variants, and I, they're like, oh yeah, you know, bowling has three different surfaces, and, and I kind of, I can get with a little bit of that, but I don't know that we need manufacturers being our basket maker. I feel like we need, I, I do think we need a little higher standards of their basket because right now we have a, like five, six baskets that I think we can play on on the elite level, and like, there's definitely three or four, or at least three of them that like. I won't say any names, but definitely yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're saying. Like, oh yeah. yeah, definitely. I can think of a couple where I see those baskets out there. I'm just like that. I've played on that basket. That cannot be fun when there's a lot of money on the line. So uh, yeah. All right. Well, Hey, that was a great discussion. I know we are getting a little close on time, so we'll kind of rapid fire through the last segment here for the ACE round. So let's go ahead. If you're new to the channel, the ACE round is the same five questions we like to ask all of our pros that we bring on to kind of allow you to compare and contrast between them. So Connor, let's get started with the first one. If you're taking a, a new player to go buy their first set of discs, what's the one mid range putter and driver that you would tell them to buy? I'm going to have to stay company loyal, obviously. So we're going to go with, uh, we'll go with the Keystone for the first putter. It's a nice glidey straight to under stable putter that I think you can learn to manipulate and throw straight with, even as a slower arm. Um, 
for the mid range, we'll go with uh, we'll go with the compass. It might be a little stable at first, but I think they'll be able to sidearm and backhand it and use it for approaches and straight drives. And it'll have a, enough stability to handle a little bit of wind for a new player too. And then uh, I love the I love the Explorer for a fairway driver. Once again, it's going to start kind of stable, but I think for newer players, they'll be able to sidearm and backhand it until they learn. And, and it'll beat in nicely to still be straight and be usable regardless of their skill level. So I think those three discs could really teach them to throw a number of shots and angles and kind of branch out from there. Yeah. Those are some great choices. Our second question we have for you, what is the favorite course you have played in one course you would love to play in the future? Favorite course I have played. I mean, part of me wants to say Iron Hill, but I, I feel like I don't want to lean into the bias. I think, you might as well lean into it, man. No, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to say Maple Hill. I mean, I feel like it's just such high level birdies out there to get. And it's a, such a challenging mental course. I didn't quite feel like I had a great week of practice after the craziness of the Delaware win. And it's a course that I feel like you need a lot of reps on to really know exactly what you want to throw, especially since I throw both, both spins pretty well. And, pretty confidently so it's hard for me to sometimes really dial down exactly what i want to do um but yeah i think for right now maple hill vermont had a chance to be if the ting surfaces were were really good and maples weren't great either but it's just like such a memorable track out there and um still haven't been anywhere overseas so i'd love to get to europe and play there's that Franz ferdinand the beast the castle course which i feel like that property just seems amazing so i feel like i'd love to get over there and then I know know there's some other good European courses I'd like to get up to. Yeah, that would be awesome. Hopefully next year we'll be able to make that happen. Our third question that we have, what is one tip you would give to yourself? Like if you could go back to when you first started playing disc golf, your, your little brother's beating you every time. What is the number one tip you would give yourself? Yeah. If I could go back, from the beginning and know, knowing that I wanted to take it as serious as I eventually did. I think, I think uh, just videotaping myself and trying to make my mechanics be as simple and repeatable as possible. Cause I think that's something that's given me a lot of success recently is just having good backhand mechanics. It's like the forehand's a little more intuitive and doesn't necessarily require as acute uh, of mastery as the backhand. Cause there's so many more moving parts on the backhand, but I think, yeah, just, simplifying and learning how to throw a proper backhand. And uh, I think that'd be my biggest tip for quick improvement, throwing neutral discs on any angle and being able to make them do things. Yeah. And I know you got to get going. So I'll go ahead and I'll skip one question. I'll get, I'll get you out of here on this last question, man. What is the biggest mistake you see new players making today? I think one of the biggest mistakes is just that classic wanting to throw fast discs. I feel like I see a lot of beginning players bags, I gave a lesson to some guy and I'm pretty sure he had like 15 or something drivers of like a distance class of like a 13 or faster rim in his bag. And it's like, he can only throw 200 something feet. So to me, I think a lot of players like, yeah. And there, and that's obviously a thing, you know, you, you see a, a player throw things really well and like, you want to be like that player and you want to kind of try to do the same thing. So you want to throw that disc. But I think really realizing like, like I said, that late flight control, like what disc, can I throw to a birdieable landing zone and control the end of the flight that I need to throw? And then if I can't control the end of the flight with the fast disc yet, then maybe I just don't put that in my bag until I 
or unless I need a skip shot or something like that. And I keep it as a situational disc until I can throw a fast disc. But I feel like a lot of people don't really need a distance driver unless they're trying to fight a headwind or move the disc left at the end of the flight or skip the disc. But I think to play controlled game and be accurate, I think most skill levels aren't going to need a distance driver until you start becoming like advanced to pro level. Yeah, we, that's definitely been a very, very popular take. And the more that I've kind of gotten into it and I've gotten some of my buddies into it who are brand new to the sport, that just continues to reign true. Learn those putters, learn those bin ranges. Connor, this was a fantastic episode, man. So thankful to have you on here. Uh, where can the people connect with you on social media? Um, I'm most active on Instagram right now. I, I just started a TikTok, so I'm getting that going as well on Facebook a little bit too. But yeah, I think Instagram is probably the best place to follow me and keep up with all, all my happenings and whatnot. Nice. What, what is the Instagram handle? It is Connor O'Reilly and then my PDJ number nine, nine, six, four, eight. So, yep. Awesome. Well, Hey, thanks Connor so much for coming on the chain clankers disc golf podcast today. I had a blast talking to you and uh, best of luck to you moving forward, man. I enjoyed it. And uh, everyone who's watched make, or listened, make sure that you like and subscribe to these guys and uh, hope uh, some of these tips help you out. Thank you for listening to the Chain Clankers podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Chain Clankers and hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to us from so you never miss another episode.